It is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the growth of another public library in Northwest Arkansas. One of the most exciting things that I've seen here in Springdale is just the development of such a vibrant multicultural society here. I love coming into work and hearing at least three languages being spoken at any given time. Plus, collecting Ozark folk magic and medicine. We're very similar to Appalachian folkways. You know, I always tell people if, you know, there's holes in the the Ozark folk record, you can look to Appalachia to fill in some of those blanks. And from the foreign service to influencer. I never thought it would be a job. You know, I had this great career, so I didn't need to make money. I just got to explore. We meet Anella Malik. First, the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to explore nature's wonders at their exhibition, Exquisite Creatures, opening March 16th. The exhibit will showcase the colorful animals, plants, and minerals found in nature. Tickets and information at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later today, Brandon Weston seeks Ozark traditions and folklore of magic, medicine, and healing. Kyle talks with him about his latest book in our second half hour. First today, Since the 1940s, the Springdale Public Library has offered the town's residents literary respite. However, Springdale has expanded quite a bit since the library's founding, and officials have deemed it time for some development. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis visited the library earlier this month to learn more about the renovations and how the update will help the library better serve its community. The Springdale Public Library is about to undergo a considerable expansion. Last month, officials announced the library will receive a $1.1 million renovation in closing the facility's outdoor courtyard. The new space will expand the adjacent children's section and allow for more programming and events to take place. Ann Gresham is the director of the library and says she is excited about the opportunities the new area will bring to library patrons primary purpose will be for larger events. We will be focusing on children's services, but there are other possibilities out here as well. We would be able to do things like provide banquet seating or have larger receptions, things like that. I'm I'm also really excited about some new possibilities this would open for us. I'm really interested in providing some kind of cooking class or uh, any kind of STEAM or robotics-based learning. This would be a great space for that too. Our plans include a lot of storage so that we have maximum flexibility for how we use the space. Previously, the library held events in the children's DVD section. You heard me right. Forcing staff members to move large crates filled with discs to make room for programming. Additionally, Gresham says the weather has prevented the library from utilizing the outdoor space to its full potential. Right now we have this outdoor courtyard space, which is essentially a concrete block that heats up pretty significantly during the summer. Uh, Rain events are uh, difficult to deal with. We've tried putting tents over it to use it as an outdoor programming space, but we haven't had a whole lot of success with it. There, there are too many variables with the elements, and it's, it's just not a very comfortable space. However, our plan is to enclose this area 
and what that's going to do is add an additional 3,000 square feet of programming space to the library. Gresham says it's been a while since the library received a physical update. The last renovation occurred from 1999 to 2000, and it more than doubled the size of the facility to 43,000 square feet. Since that last renovation, the city of Springdale has grown a lot too. In 2010, the population sat at just below 70,000 residents. Jump forward 10 years, and the population increased to more than 84,000 people. The most recent census data, from 2022, points to over 87,000 people who call Springdale their home. Of those residents, more than 1,500 people visit the Springdale Public Library every day. Gresham says the library is a community space and should grow alongside the town it serves. I feel like uh, the library really just walks hand in hand with any kind of social change. As Springdale has grown, we've seen that here. One of the most exciting things that I've seen here in Springdale is just the development of such a vibrant multicultural society here. I love coming into work and hearing at least three languages being spoken at any given time. And uh, finding ways to meet the needs of a community like that is, is exciting and it feels like meaningful work that we're all honored to do. She says the library is positioned to serve people in more ways than most public spaces. I think the library is is kind of a unique institution. We are community space. Anybody can come in. There's no pressure to buy anything. There's no pressure to disclose your reason for being here even. You can come to the library and exist as a member of this community. And having a larger space to do that in, I, I, I think just helps us with our mission. Construction will begin in August. Gresham says they chose that time because summer is a busy season for patrons and staff. Funding will come from the library's endowment and Springdale's general city fund. You could visit our website, ozarksatlarge.com, for more information about the Springdale Public Library and the upcoming project. Out of the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One, for Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today marks the start of early voting in the March 5th primary in Arkansas. This election is also the one and only election to choose the next Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Arkansas. Our partners at Little Rock Public Radio, along with the Central Arkansas Library System, recently held a candidate forum with the four candidates running for this office. Karen Baker, Arkansas Supreme Court Associate Justice, Barbara Womack-Webb, also an Associate Justice, Rhonda Wood, an additional Associate Justice, and Jay Martin, attorney and former member of the Arkansas House of Representatives. We'll hear an excerpt from that panel, moderated by Little Rock Public Radio's news director, Daniel Breen. He starts by asking the candidates what the top two areas they believe need the most improvement in Arkansas's court system. We hear first from Justice Karen Baker. The two areas. And we got these questions, and we got these questions yesterday, and I thought about the answer to this one. What is the most important areas? And I'll tell you that my focus for for the past 24 years has been, well, 
longer than that, actually, has been uh, assuring that we have a competent bar and that it is able to serve the communities in Arkansas and that we are doing what we can to serve the Arkansas people. And sometimes that takes um, thoughts about who should be licensed and who should not. Um, and frankly, the one area that the Constitution directs us to, to do to uh, deal with the attorney's licensure, we're not doing a good job, in my opinion. We've had some leadership mistakes in the past and they have continued and are causing problems to this day with how we allocate money from our license fees. And I think that the problems need to be addressed and I think we need to allocate more money for JLAP. I've been advocating for attorney mental health and I hope that we're succeeding to some extent with that, but we're, we don't have the funding we need. So that is an area. Those are two areas I would focus on. All right, thank you, Justice Baker. Uh, Justice Webb, you're up next. I like to show everybody what I believe is our challenge for the court system. Everyone has a cell phone these days. Everyone relies on technology. Actually, the courts have been very reluctant to embrace new technology. And as I came on the Supreme Court, I had been, at, as I said, chief judge at workers' comp during COVID. And I learned technology is our friend. Technology can help us do work, the work, the judicial system, much more efficiently, provide resources much more economically, and most importantly, provide access to the courts to everyone. And I believe that's the second thing that I would work for is equal access to the courts. I serve as a liaison of the court to access to justice. And I believe in equal protection for all, regardless of your race or your, co your skin color or your nationality or your gender or the money you make or the money you have. So I believe we can take new technology, whether it's with our cell phones where we notify people of their hearings or whether it's bringing court interpreters, having more available court interpreters, or having uh, working with our court reporters, which are getting scarce, making those records electronic, and all of that, I believe we can make the court system more affordable, more efficient, and more accessible. So that would be one of my focuses, main focuses as Chief Justice. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Webb. Justice Webb, again, the question, uh, what are the top two areas you think need the most improvement in Arkansas's court system? So I think to me the, the biggest problems are transparency and access to the court. And so transparency is that people are afraid of the court, they are not educated, they do not know how the court system works, and therefore they're afraid to utilize the court system to solve their problems. And that leads into then accessing the court and having that ability to use the court system. That's because day one I rolled out my priorities as Chief Justice and I said I was going to improve that um, and make it so that our rules were simplified and that we improved um, transparency and access to the court. I've done that for the last four years just on my own initiative. I started a podcast and all I do is record episodes on how their state courts work to just provide that civic education and access to the court system. And I appreciate Justice Webb is interested in technology. I've been the court liaison in technology 
and we are rolling out um, text to notifications of hearings. We are utilizing that, and I've been leading the court in that for the last four years, and um, very excited about what we're doing in that respect. Um, and we've moved court reporting, we're moving it digitally, and all of that. So um, I'm glad that my colleagues are excited about that work as well. Thank you, Justice Wood, and Mr. Martin. Thank you. Most importantly, I'm an outsider to the court. I want to be the people's judge, and I think a fresh perspective is needed in looking uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, I believe we can make decisions more timely. Uh, during my travels around the state and visiting with folks in 75 counties, but also visiting with attorneys, uh, there's concern about the time that it's taking for decisions to be made, and I think some of that may be due to COVID, but uh, we need to move cases as Chief Justice. And, they still must be good decisions. Um, I think there are also substantively uh, several areas of, of substantive law that need to be uh, cleaned up and clear and, and consistent. But we also have to work with our county and state officials. Um, we need to complete the, the capacity for e-filing for every county courthouse and the technology that is there, particularly for our circuit clerks, is very antiquated. We need state-of-the-art uh, technology and uh, even in our, some of our rural counties, it's, it's very bad. Um, our county courthouses, too, are, um, we've been traveling them, and the security is not good. Uh, we need to improve the security of our county courthouses. Uh, we need to emphasize technology in each county courthouse. And then we also need to make sure that our circuit judges and circuit clerks have the resources they need. Uh, there is a disparity in, uh, in the material needed and the material provided for circuit judges across the counties of the state. And, uh, we have very large judicial districts uh, that the judges have to travel, and so uh, that, those are two areas that really would like to work on as Chief Justice. We heard from Jay Martin, Rhonda Wood, Barbara Womack-Webb, and Karen Baker, all running for Chief Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court. You can find a link to the full forum hosted by Little Rock Public Radio and Central Arkansas Library System at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Ahead, Bentonville resident Anella Malik is a former diplomat who now travels the world as an influencer. My content and my brand is so personal that, you know, everything is shaped by my own identity. And there's multiple layers of that identity, right? I grew up in the United States. I am an American woman, but I'm also a black woman. She talks with Randy Wilburn for his latest I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. And we hear an excerpt of that later this hour. The state legislature has announced an extension to a new state law which provides a legal mechanism for survivors of child sexual abuse to report their assault. The extended look-back window allows victims of any age to speak about their experience, lengthening the existing opportunity to report. Senator David Wallace of Leachville says this is vital because children that are abused often don't want to come forward. They don't want to talk about that. And they try to put it behind them uh, in the, their teens and 20s. And this goes on for years. And statistically, throughout the whole country, folks don't really come forward until their mid-50s, where they've, they've aged enough and experienced enough and have enough life experiences to where they... Uh, they want to come forward and, and tell folks, hey, what happened? This is what happened. The old law shut off the age at which you could claim harm at, I think, 
21. So initially, we moved the age to 55 and gave folks that had been abused two years to come forth if they, they wanted to uh, follow a law claim, uh, they could do it, and 2020 did. After that initial extension, Senator Wallace says he was contacted by multiple victims outside of the age limit, which inspired him to remove it entirely. So we made an amendment in the spring of 23. The original bill was written in the spring of 21. And we opened it up to the age unlimited. You could be 99, you could be 120. And if you felt that you had been wrong, you had two years to come forward and claim that. So we reset the clock. And the end date for that, I believe, is January 31st, 2026. It might be February the 4th, but it's within a week of those dates. The folks that have been abused now have a new window to confront their abuses uh, all the way up to to include a uh, date in a court of law. There's, there's been 20 lawsuits filed over the last two years. Uh, and I, I don't know of any, but I would assume that there would be a few more few more over the next two years. For more information on the act itself or what resources are available to you, you can visit our website, ozarksatlarge.com. This is Ozarks at Large. There are legendary writers who have collected Ozark folklore, beliefs, and wisdom. Donald Harrington infused his novels with an Ozarker magical realism, and Vance Randolph was a folklorist who wrote several books about folk practices, including his national bestseller, Pissing in the Snow, and other folktales. It was Randolph's writing, in fact, that inspired Brandon Weston, a native Ozarker, to explore and write about Ozark folkways himself. Brandon has written several books and articles, including Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayer, and Healing, and the just-released Granny Thornapple's Book of Charms, Magic and Folklore from the Ozark Mountains. Brandon says he began his work collecting Ozark folklore and healings by asking a simple question. My main question at the time, because Ozark Magic and Folklore was written the 40s, 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. um, and the information was collected earlier than that. So really, my question was, is it still here? It's a great question. Do we still have this today? I mean, can I walk out, you know, can, can I go to Stone County and see the stuff that Vance Randolph was collecting? So that's kind of where early on where I saw myself was updating the story. And really, I wanted to do that by talking to people. I wanted to go out. I wanted to, you know, be in people's houses and watch them make recipes and hear them talk about things. And so that's what I did. I started with family and collecting family stories, things like that. And then pretty much by word of mouth, sort of traveled around Arkansas and Missouri. You know, one person would have a bunch of stories and then they would say, oh, well, if you want to know this, you got to go talk to so-and-so down the road. And it sort of just... uh, branched out from there. Ozarkers are known for being independent mm. and and being a bit skeptical. So I wonder if in, in your early time trying to find people who could tell you about uh, remedies and spells and things like that, if you ran into any 
even mild resistance. Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's a famous f- phrase that Vance Randolph collected, um, we always lie to strangers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, uh, is a very, it's a very good way of looking at the Ozarks. And it's not out of any animosity or anything like that. It's, you know, the secretiveness is self-preservation. And, you know, the Ozark region, people have been taken advantage of for, you know, since the very beginning. And uh, they came from places in Appalachia where, you know, they were mistreated, things like that. So there is a lot of secretiveness. But I I have found that Ozarkers open up when they start to trust you. Mm -hmm. And that trust begins, if you are already an Ozarker, you kind of already have your foot in the door. Right. (laughs) And so I learned that I couldn't just go up to somebody and say, hey, my name is Brandon. I'm collecting folk remedies. I had to say, hey, you know, my grandparents or great-grandparents, you know, they they are buried in this graveyard over here. Could you tell me more about that? And then branch off from there and start talking about, you know, recipes and remedies, things like that. And so I, I think I mentioned in the first book that, you know, there's this a little bit of a game mm-hmm. that you have to play sometimes, especially with the old timers where, you know, you have to trace your lineage um, and you have to establish yourself as being a part of the, the region. And once you can do that and once you approach with kindness, they will show kindness to you and they'll open up. And so as somebody who grew up in, you know, in town in Northwest Arkansas here, um, I kind of had to learn all of that um, because it wasn't really still a part of my family traditions. Um, So going out into rural areas, I I really found that in a lot of places that secretiveness is still very much present. The Ozarks, of course, they're Scotch-Irish and there were immigrants and there were indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Do these sort of connect or intersect or overlap when it comes to Ozark folklore and folkways? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a mishmash of a lot of stuff. Um, you know, f- from the outside, the observable practices and, and, and folk beliefs and things like that are mostly Northern European. Um, you know, we get the Scots-Irish a lot, um, especially in like the history books and things like that. But people sort of, a lot of people don't know that there's such a German influence here, um, specifically from Pennsylvania, Germany, or Pennsylvania, German country, and then down through Southern Appalachia and over to the Ozarks. And so, you know, I, I always tell people that really, if you're looking at folk folk magic traditions and, and practices across the United States, the closest to Ozark folk practice would be Pennsylvania German folk right. healing and, and things like that. There's a lot of that influence here in the Ozarks. And so, yeah, you can see fingerprints from a lot of different places. Um, and for me, as a sort of researcher slash practitioner, it's really interesting to sort of peel apart and, and, you know, especially like the indigenous influences that you mentioned, we have West African and Northern African influences as well um, from, you know, practices like hoodoo and conjure and things like that. And so for me, it's really interesting to be able to see where these practices sort of overlap. And what's really interesting are the practices that we don't know who influenced who. Mm. And so uh, I always tell people, you know, the tradition surrounding red cedar in the Ozarks, which is actually a juniper. It's not a cedar. Juniperus virginiana. So 
the Highlanders in Scotland and in, you know, the mountainous areas in Germany had been using juniper, European juniper, for thousands of years as medicine and magic. And so when these people came to the New World, they found red cedar. And lo and behold, the indigenous people in the southeast were using red cedar in almost the same ways that the European settlers were using it. So as as medicine, as a smoke, cleansing smoke. And so this is one of those areas, and there are a lot of these, where this mishmash of practices, we don't really know who influenced who. Um, and so that for me is very exciting because it sort of points to this you know, this is, I, I always say, this is a human inheritance. It's not necessarily a cultural inheritance. And so we can see sort of all of these different groups of people and how they develop these practices at the same time across the world from each other. It's very interesting. Influenced, sharing, whatever. But is is Ozark folklore and Ozark folkways unique to the Ozarks? Is it a unique sort of brand? It is, yeah. Um, our, you know, we're very similar to Appalachian folkways. You know, I always tell people if, you know, there's holes in the, fo- the Ozark folk record, you can look to Appalachia to fill in some of those blanks um, because we're, we're so close and, in, in, you know, Ozarkers come from southern Appalachia. But when these practices got to the Ozarks, they came with families mostly. And at the time in the beginning, these families were really isolated from each other. And so the practices developed and evolved in that isolation. And so, you know, it's always been a tradition of, you know, if if someone down the road has a remedy that you don't have, you know, collect it, write it down, share it, and maybe you have something that they don't have. And so this helped develop sort of commonalities across the Ozarks. But, you know, what I write about and what I have collected and what I practice in my own life is, you know, 10% of, you know, what is actually out there is really the tip of the iceberg um, because these are family traditions and they evolve within the families and families differ from families. Of course. I'm talking with Brandon Weston. He's the author of several books, researcher. One is Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing. Another is his brand new one, Granny Thornapple's Book of Charms. I'm going to ask you about that in a bit, but I want to ask you about some of the practices, some Mm -hmm. of the folklore that I find fascinating. First of all, something I heard as a child and I never understood was the term Yarb doctor. What is a Yarb doctor? Where'd that come from? So Yarb is sort of Ozark speak for an herb. Okay. Um, specifically for a medicinal plant. Um, but if you talk to yarb doctors, everything in nature is medicinal. So technically everything, every plant can be a yarb. Um, but commonly yarbs referred to medicinal plants. And really, you know, this this sort of came to the forefront when pharmacies moved into the area and these pharmacists would hire yarb doctors or yarb diggers to go out to the hills to dig up popular herbs and roots, so things like ginseng, golden seal, blood root, the things that the pharmacist would use. Um, And so Yarb turned from sort of just Ozark dialect into sort of a a wider known. But it's kind of a mysterious word. No one really knows where it comes from. There are theories that it has a Spanish origin with like – Yerbera or Yarbera, um, like referring to Yarb or <laughs> Yarb's medicinal herbs. Um, there's theory that, you know, there are some British 
counties that use YARB um, as a part of their dialect too. So it could come from there. Um, but it's one of those things that you don't really hear a lot anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to make <laughs> bring it back. Bring it back. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it refers to a, a medicinal plant. So a YARB doctor would be somebody that had the gift for being able to not just utilize plants in a medicinal way, but you know, even be able to know which plants were medicinal. And sometimes that's, you know, by training. Other times that's through dreams, uh, encounters with spirits, things like that. What about plugging? I find this fascinating. What is plugging? (laughs) Plugging, yeah, it's an old remedy. And so this would actually be a remedy um, used by what's called a power doctor. Um, Power doctors, as opposed to yarb doctors, typically didn't work with medicinal plants. They worked with what we might call curios from like the hoodoo or conjure tradition. Basically, they, they knew the prayers, the verbal charms, the amulets. You know, they knew that if you carry a buckeye nut with you, it'll protect against rheumatism and the devil as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they were really the, the sort of local magicians. Um, and so plugging would have been a ritual that they used. Um, and so basically it's the idea that trees and certain places in nature can purify sicknesses, illnesses, curses. And so in order to do that, you need to connect the cursed person or the sick person to the tree that can then purify it. And this is done in a lot of ways. Uh, One common way is to put the sickness in a container like an egg and then throw the egg at the tree and it transfers to the tree and the tree purifies it. Another way is plugging. So you would go out and you would bore a hole into a tree, usually like a hickory tree or um, there are certain trees called witch trees that are sort of spooky. So like the pawpaw tree, the sassafras, the red cedar. Um, Spirits like to hang around these trees. And so you would go to these trees because they're extra magical. You would bore a hole in there. And then you've got to connect the patient to the tree somehow. So this is using this uses um, identifying materials from the person. So hair, fingernail clippings, spit, mm-hmm. things like that. So you would collect these, and if it's physical objects, a lot of times you'd mix it with wax, beeswax, something like that, and you would put that into the hole, and then you would use a plug, usually a branch from the tree, and you would nail it or hammer it into the the hole, sealing it up. The idea being that the sickness, the curse, whatever it is, transfers to those materials that are put into the tree. And over time, as the tree heals, so too will the patient heal. But there is always a warning with this because it is said that people that know about this, they can go out and they can unplug that, gather up those identifying materials, and then use them to curse the person or to prevent them from getting better. There's an interesting relationship between Ozarkers and what we're talking about because it's spirits, but also there's this conservative Christian Mm -hmm. uh, culture in the Ozarks that don't want to necessarily talk about spirits. So there's this sort of, I don't know, in-between recognition of spirits or ghosts or things like that. Yeah. Uh, one old-timer put it in a very good way. Um, he, he said that, you know, a lot is permissible as long as you don't talk about it. <laughs> uh-huh. And so there is this culture of, you know, 
maybe not talking about things as much, um, but still participating in them. And one of the, you know, growing up, I always, there were certain things that you didn't say. For instance, you know, if something really good happened, you know, you don't go bragging about it because it tempts the fates. You know, it, you you run the risk of that being taken away from you or, or something happening around that. And it's sort of the same way. Um, traditionalists, the old timers, you know, a lot of times they didn't talk about healing practices and stuff like that because they didn't want to risk being the, the, the person that made that practice go away or affected the practice in some way. And so I, I've met healers who, you know, after doing healing, there was no thank you exchanged mm. at all um, because the idea is that, you know, it's not necessarily me that's doing the healing. So there's no thanks to me that's needed. And this idea that, you know, if we talk about the practice too much, it, you run the risk of the, the mystery <laughs> being not so mysterious, but then also sort of the power being taken out of the practice. Your new book is Granny Thornapple's Book of Charms. And it's a little bit different than your previous books because it has a fictional character who's kind of a guide. Yeah. So uh, with this book, I really wanted to connect to this old tradition in the Ozarks of the teaching story. And so, you know, being an oral folk culture, a lot was has traditionally been passed down word of mouth um, to the point of, you know, I've met people who still to this day, you know, they won't write down recipes. Because right, right. You, you know, there's this idea of writing down a recipe, you know, might take some of the charm out of it or might take some of the magic out of it. And so, um, you know, this idea of connecting to word of mouth and storytelling as a way of imparting information, sometimes hidden information um, that can be hidden behind fictional characters and entertainment, things like that. So I really wanted to connect to this this old tradition. And, you know, it is an entertaining story. You follow Granny Thornapple from birth to death um, as she sort of explores her own gift and how that manifests with her teachers as well as after her teachers have passed, which is a, a sort of an important thing in the Ozarks, this idea of being past something, but then it's up to us as people who maybe have the gift to then evolve it in our own way in order to then pass it down. And so we follow Granny Thornapple through these, you know, different stories in these chapters. Um, and there's there's a, a little bit of a, a teaching moments in every one of these stories. And of course, you can read them for entertainment. But I always say, you know, if you know, you know, mm -hmm. and there may be some, you know, magical information and things that you can glean out of these stories. Brandon Weston's new book is Granny Thornapple's Book of Charms, Magic and Folklore from the Ozark Mountains. He'll be signing copies Saturday, March 2nd at the Four of Wands on College Avenue in Fayetteville and Saturday, March 9th at Strange Brew Occult Shop on Garrison Avenue in Fort Smith. Details about Brandon and the signings can be found at OzarkHealing.com. path you're on isn't always the path you started. Anella Malik knows this. She lives in Bentonville, but travels the world for her website, Feed the Malik. As she tells Randy Wilburn during the latest episode of his I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, her career began as a diplomat. Fluent in Arabic, she served with the U.S. Foreign Service in Jordan. And she says there are many paths within the Foreign Service. And one of those is called public diplomacy. And 
Public diplomacy involves things like making social media content, writing for public consumption, so writing remarks that are going to be read or heard by the public, creating videos, hosting events, actually very similar work to what I'm doing now. And I was a new officer and I felt like I could probably use some help figuring out what the heck I'm doing in this job. And so I started my platform as a way to build skills for that job. And I never really thought it would be anything. I never thought it would be a job. You know, I had this great career, so I didn't need to make money. I just got to explore. And I also used my platform as a way to kind of get out of the embassy bubble and to go to places that maybe all the other Americans didn't go to and practice my Arabic. I had spent so much money and so many years in school to learn Arabic that I wanted to use it. So that's how Feed Them Leaks started as an experiment, a hobby, and something that was really free, right? I didn't have to monetize it. I didn't really have any plans for it other than to learn and try new things. And then it grew and it grew <laughs> and it grew. And eventually I quit the foreign service. It just wasn't working for me and for my personal life and for what I wanted for myself. And I took a chance on making Feed the Malik a career. And I will say this because everyone's always like, oh, that's so brave. You must have had you know, such a, a good strategy. I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I just walked away one day and was like, well, I've been doing this other thing and I'll see if I can make some money. And I always knew that if it didn't work, I would just get another job. Yeah. And I to pay for part of school, I worked in restaurants for a long time. So that was my backup plan was, if this doesn't work, I can walk into a restaurant down the street and get a job as a server tomorrow. And so you know how to hustle. Be, yeah. <laughs> it might not be glamorous. Right. And you might not make a ton of money, but you can always get a job at a restaurant. And so that was my backup plan. And yeah. thankfully, I didn't have to exercise that and Feed Them Leak has worked. It really has. I mean, you know, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there is no influencer for dummies book out there to read. I mean, you literally have to, it's just trial and error. You have to learn by doing. And in the same way that you kind of ventured out to expand your palette, if you will, of understanding a foreign place, it's the same process with, you know, creating this platform that you've created uh, online, which I think is really cool. And then to add to it, I mean, as an influencer of color, I mean, how do you feel personally that your identity has shaped your experiences and more specifically, the content that you create on Feed the Malik? Yeah. So I would say that because my, my content and my brand is so personal that you know everything is shaped by my own identity. And there's multiple layers of that identity, right? I grew up in the United States. I am an American woman, but I'm also a Black woman. And I grew up you know, surrounded by strong black figures that were really invested in making sure that I understood not only where I came from, but understood, you know, the history and nuances of our culture and our community. And then on top of that, you know, my mom is Asian American. And um, I grew up with parents who always encouraged me to not only travel, but really encouraged me to be whatever I wanted to be. And I, I'm really grateful for that. You know, I always had to get good grades. <laughs> that was <laughs> not negotiable in our household. Yeah. But my parents were like, oh, she's interested in dance. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see if she, that's something she wants to continue doing. And then, oh, she's interested in food. Okay. <laughs> and so they really nurtured that. And so all of those multi-layered like interests and identities 
play into my work. And definitely, right, I cover a lot of Black-owned businesses. I talk a lot about Black foodways. I actually wrote a book about Black food history for National Geographic, which should publish next year in 2025. What? Um, wait, 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 stop. I, you wrote a book? <laughs> yes. You just threw that I, out there just kind of casually. I mean, because I don't, I don't think I remember, or maybe I may, I may have missed the post where you announced that you were even working on a book, but I'm really not surprised. And I'm going off on a tangent here. When I see other creators like the brother that did High on the Hog on Netflix and, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, there is, I mean, people are craving that information and that feedback. So, I mean, kudos to you for doing that and connecting with a brand like National Geographic to do that is even, is even more impressive. So congrats on that. I can't wait. I will be in line to buy that and uh, hopefully I'll be able to at least get it signed by you one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you. Honestly, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I don't want to write another book, but who knows? I say that and then in a year I might be like, ah, I could do it again. Yeah. But I wrote a book about the deep and enduring contributions of Black peoples to American cuisine for National Geographic. And right. So like these are things that I'm interested in. They're part of my identity. I am a Black woman. I exist in this world as a Black woman. And especially in America, that really shapes not only your interactions with other people, but how you're perceived, right? Yeah. But then I also have a background in politics. So if you watch my content, sometimes I can be very political. And I think that surprises people because we like to think of influencers in our culture as one-dimensional or, you know, simple or vapid when in reality, it's like- Or such safe. A complex or safe. Safe is career. another word, right? Safe. And it's yeah. a very complex career. So the people who are making it work Typically, yeah, they have a lot going on. Adela Malik's website is Feed the Malik, and her conversation with Randy Wilburn can be heard on his I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can subscribe through any podcast platform or listen at either IamNorthwestArkansas.com or at KUAF.com. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features William Schreckheis, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Arkansas. Schreckheis's research addresses American politics, public policy, law, administrative law, and public administration. In the podcast, he discusses a recent study on civility, gridlock, polarization, and productivity in state legislators. While he suspected there was a link, Schreckheis and his co-authors, including U of A colleague Eric Button, were surprised by the strength of the link. Even when you take into account the extent of party polarization, the population size of the state, the competitiveness of the political parties, all these other things, the degree to which the state lobbyists rate the legislature as being civil is the best predictor of how many bills that legislature passed and whether or not they passed that budget on time and whether or not they passed some kind of important legislation. You can listen to Shrek Heiss wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. You can also find Short Talks from the Hill online at kuaf.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm at the Conference Center for Public Radio, and with me is Catherine Sherlds, our militant grammarian. Welcome back. Thanks. Well, Kyle, I hope you've been studying up on your idioms because I've got a quiz for you. I love quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a hint. Okay. They are all idioms using parts of the body. Oh, there's probably several. And hint number two, these are body parts above the neck, or I should say the neck and above. Okay. 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 You ready? Yes. 
Old age can be a pain, Kyle. The mm-hmm. other day I went to the store to buy some thread, and I couldn't for the life of me remember what the word for it mm-hmm. was. I almost had it. It was... Tip of the tongue. Yes. On the tip of your tongue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The tip of the tongue phenomenon was first described as a psychological phenomenon in the test The Principles of Psychology by William Jaynes in 1890, although he did not label it as such. It's quite a wide field of study among psychologists and medical researchers. Okay, tongues figure in several common idioms. Mm -hmm. When something is quite easy to remember or even just to pronounce, it what? Rolls off the tongue. It does. When you say something you really didn't mean to say. A slip of the tongue. Mm -hmm. When you have to make a concerted effort not to say something, especially something mean about someone. Hold my tongue. Or bite your tongue. Or bite Mm -hmm. your tongue, yeah. Mm -hmm. Bite your tongue is a popular phrase originating at least to the time of Shakespeare. He used a variation of it in Henry VI. It supposedly refers to the fact that if you hold your tongue between your teeth, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to speak. That's not a bad thing to try to do more of, I think. Yes. Alternatively, perhaps it is a proposed form of punishment. Mm. (laughs) You're thinking that, chomp. Yeah. (laughs) Moving to another part of the mouth, Kyle, how could you describe something that is very difficult? It's like pulling teeth. Yes, yes. And something that literally might lead to pulling teeth, what idiom would would be used to describe a chocoholic? They have a... Sweet tooth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right, that could lead to a pulled tooth. (laughs) You're right. Okay, we've hung around in this anonymous mouth long enough. Okay. Let's move up just a little bit. Kyle, is there a particular food that you just won't eat? Not really. There used to be, but I'm... Yeah, sure, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I'll eat just about anything. So let's say someone served it to you and you refuse to eat it. Using an idiom with a facial element, what might you be accused of? I don't want to eat it. They put something in front of you and you don't don't want it. Uh, Not turn the other cheek. Close. Turn up your nose. Turn your nose up. Turn up your nose, right. Mm -hmm. A description of a gesture... Possibly universally understood as indicating scorn, contempt, or disgust. Mm-hmm. Scorns were shown by the people in the 16th century when they want others to realize that something's beneath them. Right. I've always thought of turning your nose up as it's snobbery. Snobbery, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. This was done by putting the nose in the air along with arrogant facial expressions. Yes. <laughs> Moving up a bit more, what facial idiom might you use to describe a billboard that attracts your attention? Eye-catching. There. Yeah. Good. Okay, Kyle, I know you're no prude. It would probably take a lot to make you do this, but if you were shocked, mm-hmm. what might you do thinking about a facial idiom? And I don't mean scared shocked, but just, you know, oh. Taken okay. aback, sort of? Yeah, kind of. What facial Raise idiom? Raise an eyebrow. There you got okay. it. Okay. The phrase raise some eyebrows comes from the early 1900s. People often literally raise their eyebrows when they're shocked by something. And so this phrase came to mean to be used figuratively to describe things that shock people. Okay. So to my knowledge, I don't think you spend much time down in the dumps. No, not really. No. But if you did have a continuing disappointment, what facial idiom might I use to tell you to keep going? Oh, keep your chin up. Yeah. I've always... This probably has nothing to do with the origin. <laughs> I've always thought of that as an anti-drowning 
maneuver. Well, it would help. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't don't drown in your sorrows or something. Well, Keep that's kind of that's kind of what it oh, is. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, you're you're envisioning it in a physical yeah, 3D way, in, yeah, an emergency thing. But you know, if 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 yeah, you're feeling posture. bad, you've got your head down usually. Yeah, yeah, posture. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the first printed reference comes from an October 1900 edition of the Pennsylvania newspaper, The Evening Democrat. Keep your chin up. Don't take troubles to bed with you. Hang them on a chair with your trousers and drop them in a glass of water with your teeth. (laughs) Kyle, I remember, and I'm sure many of our listeners remember, when you decided to take Ozarks at large to a daily show. Almost 14 years ago, yes. Wow. Yeah. Although it's been very successful, it was a risk. Uh Uh-huh. What body part might we invoke to describe what you did? And we're talking neck and up. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, to take a risk is to what? It's actually a physical thing that I don't even think is possible. <laughs> stick your neck out. That's it. How yeah, do you how do stick you... your neck out? Okay. I've always, <laughs> I've always equated sticking your neck out. With a chicken. Well, no, I with the guillotine. <laughs> Or with, uh-huh. with yeah, yeah. being beheaded. Which is, which is chicken. Yeah, being. right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. I've always thought of it as like, you know, don't do anything that would expose you yeah. or make you vulnerable. Yeah, that, yeah. that's interesting. Um, the idiom stick, uh, stick one's neck out is an American phrase that came into use in the 1920s. I knew this was going to be something from the 18th or 17th century. Go on. <laughs> wow. The exact origin is unknown. Some ascribe the origin to the fact that a chicken or turkey will stretch out its neck when placed on the chopping block. Oh, okay. Mm. All right. I'm sure the decision to go daily was well considered. I imagine a group. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> well, that's what I think. Yes. That, let, let's let the we're listeners gonna, yes, believe that. Absolutely. Yeah. I imagine a group of you meeting to discuss it, and as often happens in brainstorming sessions, Mm -hmm. someone might have offered an initial information quickly without research or calculation. That is true. What body part idiom might apply to how that person prefaced an idea? So... They would start to... They'd say this, and then they'd give your... Right. So I'm I'm spitballing. I'm... um, it's 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 a body part... Above, this is coming off the top of my head. That's right. Yes, and this off is kind the top of how of my the, head. Mm-hmm. this is kind of how a daily show actually did develop. <laughs> <laughs> this idiom originated in America. A lot of them came from America yeah. in the mid 1900s. Huh. People typically say this before sharing their initial reaction to something, a rough estimate of a figure, or their first ideas. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay, Kyle, I like these body idioms. <laughs> so for the next time, I'll keep my eyes peeled. And don't let the cat get your tongue. Our militant grammarian is Catherine Sherlds. <laughs> My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. If this is just a beginning, my life is gonna be beautiful. I've sunshine enough to spread. It's just like the fella said. Tell me quick, ain't love a kick. In the head. This is Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas Department of Education is launching the first phase of its effort to improve literacy rates under the Arkansas Learns Act. The Literacy Tutoring Grant Program, which gives money directly to families, 
was approved earlier this month for kindergarten through third grade students. Eligible students will receive a $500 grant, which the Education Department estimates could be used for up to 25 sessions with a reading specialist. The department has not yet said how many students have been awarded the grants, but in a press release wrote that 20,000 children qualify for the money. A spokesperson for the department says school districts will notify parents if their student qualifies for the program by February 26th. The grants can be used to access tutoring services, digital literacy applications or software from a list of approved providers. Funds will be distributed and managed through the third-party platform ClassWallet and must be used by June 30th. The Department of Education also announced another literacy initiative, the High Impact Tutoring Pilot Program. It will deploy as many as 120 literacy coaches to school districts across Arkansas. That program is expected to roll out later this year. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the University of Arkansas is considering outsourcing groundskeeping and custodial work. That's left staff members worried about their future. It's killed morale. You know, uh, people have given everything they have, blood, sweat, and tears. The harder they work, now they feel like it's, you know, arranging deck chairs and, as they say, on the Titanic. More details tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Jack Travis, Daniel Breen, Sophia Narani, Randy Wilburn, Daniel Carruth, a whole host of people helping. Thank you to all of them. Matthew, produced today's program inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. You can always keep up to date on Ozarks at Large by subscribing to the free newsletter and listen to the show on your schedule with the free podcast. All of those details at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. So yesterday, the Arkansas Razorbacks completed their first uh, series of the year, mm-hmm. played James Madison University. Kudos to Andrew Hutchinson, writing for Best of Arkansas Sports. This is the sort of thing that I just love. Oh, he gets in the weeds on so much. Oh, it's great. and this is, this is, okay. So he discovered that it was present. Well, he didn't discover that it was President's Day, but yes, it was President's Day. There are only two schools named after presidents that play NCAA baseball. James Madison, George Washington University. First time JMU's ever played because oh, Monday games are rare, yeah. right? George Washington had only played on President's Day once before, losing to Virginia 15-2. to So yesterday was only the second time that a school named after a president had played on President's Day in baseball. I love I love esoteric stats yes. like that. And so those presidential schools are now, have now been outscored 19 to 2 on President's <laughs> Day. Well, maybe there's a good reason they don't play on President's Day. There you go. Day. Andrew Hutchinson, Best of Arkansas Sports. Well done. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2024 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information.